want to celebrate the goodness of God. Brexit has never been far from the headlines this last few years, and recent weeks have accelerated the complex collection of issues involved in it, which sadly continue to divide rather than uh, enable our society to coalesce. But important though Brexit is, and crucial as are some of its implications, Brexit is as nothing compared to the present and ever-looming significance of the critical issues relating to climate change. When we talk about climate change, we're talking about global changes in the Earth's average temperature. The Earth's temperature moves up and down naturally and has done for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but in recent times, and particularly over the last 150 to 200 years, the temperature has been just going up rather than going up and coming down. And is going up now more and more rapidly, causing some people writing and talking to speak of a climate emergency. And we watch, don't we, the terrifying effects of climate change somewhere in the world almost every week. Extreme rainfall here, a flood there, a heat wave in this region, wildfires in that, hotter weather most everywhere. NASA data says that the Earth has experienced 17 of its 18 warmest years on record since 2001. And we know that even here in London. I've never lived anywhere in my life where I keep the windows open more than here. It's not like the north of England, that's real England, it's cold. But apparently it was 21 degrees Celsius at Kew Gardens and that was in February this year. There are huge drops in wildlife populations and there are shrinking tropical forests. There's growing urbanization and rising sea levels as ice caps melt and warmth expands water. A Methodist leader from the South Pacific region was talking movingly uh, just recently that his people would be among the first climate change refugees because their island homes would be submerged in the South Pacific and be under sea level within 20 or 30 years and unlike other kinds of refugees there would be no hope of ever returning home. In late July this year, scientists announced that the world had used up the budget of environmental resources for 2019. So that for the five months from August to the end of December, we are, if you like, environmentally living on credit. The problem is that we now do this every year with the point of moving into environmental debt coming further and further back into the year. 
and significantly, it's the view of the vast majority now, with some notable exceptions, one or two who should know better, that much of our climate emergency is actually human-made, brought about by our use, and particularly abuse, of this beautiful blue planet. So this Harvest Sunday, I wanted to remind us of several simple but profoundly important truths that arise from our scriptures and particularly from that opening passage of the Christian scriptures from the book of Genesis. And I'm using here a number of insights because, as some of you know, I went to Mexico City for the World Methodist Council nearly three weeks ago, and this was our theme. And therefore, the germs of this sermon emerged from a number of friends and colleagues there. First, when we read Genesis, it's absolutely clear that God creates a world that is good. After each act of creation in that long reading that Jenny read for us, God periodically stops and the narrator says, and God said or saw it was good. And at the end of our lesson, we read this, and God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Creation was created and remains good in spite of all the human world or despite all that the human race seeks to do. But it's clear too that creation is not only good, it is real. Creation is tangible. We can touch it, we breathe in it, we experience it. It's a living thing which responds to what happens to it. It is not an illusion. Why, you say, is Martin Atkins including this rather curious statement in the middle of a sermon about harvest? Well, because a number of religious philosophies have regarded the earth, in fact regarded the whole of human life, as essentially illusionary. It's not really real. It's a testing ground for something else. It's a kind of uh, side issue from where true reality lies. Anybody who knows anything about platonic philosophy will know immediately the kind of things I'm talking about. Or that it's real enough in one sense, but it doesn't matter very much. Matter doesn't matter. Christianity has a long and strong tradition of regarding things of the spirit as good, but things of the earth as bad. We've got almost in some times of Christian history, an almost Orwellian view that if something belongs to the realm of the spirit, that's great. But if it belongs to the nitty-gritty of the real world, then it's inherently sinful and you don't want anything to do with it. It's called, for those like technical terms, it's called dualism. 
Now, these things are important because those who think that the earth is either an illusion, not really real, or that it's inherently evil rather than God declaring it to be good, tend not to care or to care less profoundly about what actually happens to the earth. And consequently, have a tendency to ignore things, including climate change, that might cause harm to it. As the old spiritual goes, and we understand it in the context it was written, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Pause. So why should I really care about it much? Genesis declares that the world is good and real and important. Important for every creature on it. When God creates beings on the air and the land and the sea, God names them. Goes to great lengths, almost repetitiously in, in Genesis to say, and it's called this, and it does this, and it's located there. And in naming them, God gives each species a unique identity and clearly a right to live and exist on the planet which is his creation for all. That's one reason why, just a few chapters later on, when the great flood comes to wash away, note, the sin of fallen humankind, that Noah, the conservationist, ensures that there are two of every kind of creature safe in the ark. If creatures were of no consequence, presumably he wouldn't have been so adamant that that's what needed to be done. Next, I want you to notice that Genesis makes it clear that creation is orderly. There's a pattern to it. When we read Genesis, we, we almost read as if God is an artist, a creative artist with a wide canvas. And with one stroke, God sets boundaries that are going to map out and describe the whole. Light from darkness, water from firmament, day and night. Plants and trees and living creatures are placed in God's creation. Birds to the heaven, fish to the seas, etc. There's order in it. There's design, there's intention. Destabilize that order and things become depleted and even extinct and dangerous as indeed many people say they are increasingly becoming. And all this connects to human behavior and particularly human morality. In Genesis, it's human disobedience that leads to the cursing of the ground in chapter 3 and it's human wickedness that brings about the sending of the flood in Noah's time. The orderliness of creation isn't an orderliness that relates to absolutely everything else except human behavior. Yes, you fish and you birds and you plants, you've got to do as you're told. We just please ourselves. We're created as beings who have a moral accountability in relation to God's creation. That's one reason why we can't be indifferent or unconcerned 
about disordered creation, about human actions that result in the oppression or the poverty or the injustice affected upon fellow creatures. The human race is part of God's creation and is interconnected with every other part of it. Damage to creation affects us. And as climate change devotees and challengers and campaigners keep saying, this is a long-term deliberate act of self-destruction. Why on earth would you want to do it? But it's more than human accountability. Genesis also makes it clear that the human race is given responsibility for God's creation. The world is, if you like, placed in human hands and we as humans become stewards of it. We've used that word already several times this morning. Stewards meaning that it's not ultimately ours, but entrusted to us by its creator who indicates what is required and desired and how it should be. Just look for a moment at two key parts of the Genesis story. Genesis 1.28, which uh, Jenny read for us, says this. God blessed them, this is the human beings, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have rule or dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Well, said lots of people reading Genesis, what on earth is Atkins and everybody else going on about? We can do what we want with the earth. It says so. Look, God's given permission. And then we read in Genesis 2.15, which is not in our reading, otherwise it would have been even longer. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, how are those two passages in the first two chapters of Genesis to be related, to be understood in relation to one another? There are several Hebrew words that come into play here, and you know I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But those used, the words used in Genesis 1, which we translate rule or dominion, dominion is a better word, is to, uh, is to have the same meaning as a king or ruler is entrusted when they take up dominion over that which they rule. In other words... The king is to seek to care for everything in his dominion. So a ruler who exploits and trashes and makes life a misery for their subjects is deemed even time after time after time in the Old Testament as a bad king, as a bad ruler. And a ruler who promotes peace and the fruits of the land are shared with all and people are able to rejoice is noted in the Old Testament as a good ruler. And it's this good ruler, this good dominion, 
which is meant when it's used in Genesis chapter 1. So dominion doesn't mean that you can kick things about because it's yours. It means it has been given to you so that having dominion over it, you do what the Creator wants you to do with it and for the benefit of all under your dominion. Then there's another word, shamar, which means to watch over or to guard. Actually, the nearest we can get in English is to pay careful attention to. Careful attention to ourselves and our motives. Careful attention to what our master, the creator God, wills and commands. Careful attention to those things over which we've got stewardship. So, don't neglect them. So just as Adam's first responsibility was to tend the garden in which God placed him, so human beings must pay careful attention to what has been given to them, to watch over it and to guard it. So you see how those two words, taken back to their root and their meaning, begin to give you a different tone from the person that says, rule over it. Have dominion over it. Do what you like with it because I've given it to you. And actually has what kind of exercising of dominion will you have? And will you pay special care and attention to all that I've given you? So fallen, disobedient and rebellious as humanity is, and that's the story of Genesis 2 and 3 particularly, remember. We are God's representatives, stewards of God's creatures and creation, called to care for it in the service of God and every creature and fellow human being in it. Given by our maker tremendous responsibility of handing on what has been handed on down to future generations, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, so that they do not suffer our foolishness, our selfishness, our wrong concepts of dominion. And this becomes even more important when we re recognize that Jesus, the Savior of the world and our Savior, redeems us. Because we, we often see, and rightly so, that having our sins washed away or being set free from what binds us or being reconciled to God are all the things that we describe as the work of salvation that Jesus does in us. Praise the Lord. But at harvest and today, we need to go one logical step further and ask, if that is what salvation is, if this is what God in Christ does, if we are redeemed and restored and forgiven, then how do saved people live in the world that God has created? And it's in this context that we can't celebrate harvest without considering our stewardship, yes, and our discipleship as followers of Jesus without recognizing the plight of 2.8 billion people on this planet 
who struggle to survive on less than two US dollars a day, and more than one billion souls who don't have safe drinking water this Sunday morning. Without recognizing that the greatest effects of climate change fall disproportionately upon the already most vulnerable in the world. Without recognizing that the plundering of our natural resources, the overfishing of the seas, the polluting of the atmosphere, and generally behaving as if everything is renewable and infinite, that must now end and a new way of living and living together adopted. Without recognizing that our behavior on this planet is rather like that of traders and moneylenders in the temple, the place of the Lord, whose activities the Lord Jesus ruins in anger. To conclude, what would our continuing Christian conversion look like today? I suggest four things in their sentences. Number one, to put prayer for the created world and its future and the facets we know about it high on our prayer priorities. Two, to permit the exploitation of peoples and natural resources to begin to generate in us a righteous anger that we see in Jesus in the temple in order to turn things around. Three, to decide more resolutely than we did yesterday, to promote and protest so that climate change issues become ever more prominent in our society and our news, even if it alienates those many groups with many different vested interests. And fourth and lastly, to be filled with a zeal for the house of the Lord, by which, we, by which we mean not a building, beautiful though it is like this, but the whole created order by which, which God declared to be good and orderly and in Christ died to save and restore and is now entrusted to us to watch over and take care. If we resolve to do one or more of those things this morning, then to quote Luke, salvation has come to this house. And on Easter, that might be an appropriate discipleship response. Amen. So we stand and we sing a traditional hymn with that harvest in